grace of faith? Do you want to finish strong? I think you all do. I do. I believe you do as well. So how do we do that? That's the point of our text. Now you'll notice that our text begins with the word therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore, it's important to look at what just was said before. Because the author wants to draw conclusions from what he just covered. So in this context, what, what comes after the therefore is a bunch of commands. Today we're going to cover six commands. But how many know the Christian life is not just a bunch of commands? Do this, do that, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. It is commands that are built upon wonderful promises. Wonderful resources that God provides to us. So in this context, we have six commands, but they're built upon the foundation laid in verses 1 through 11. So what I want to do, just for a few moments, is I want to do a little bit of work in order to, for us to be reminded of what's come before verse 12. Before the therefore, verse 12. So if you remember, verses 1 and 2 tells us that we are in this race, and we are to... We're to, do, we're to look in three different directions. This is the way I would put it anyways. We're to look back at the witnesses that have gone before us, the great cloud of witnesses, these saints that lived before us. You guys like reading biographies, don't you, of Christian heroes of the faith or hearing about them? We look back to the heroes of the faith who have gone before us. We look up and fix our eyes on Christ, and we look forward to the unspeakable joy that is before us. It says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And because he looked to the joy set before him, if we are in Christ, it is also the joy set before us. So we fix our eyes on Christ, which means we, we set our thoughts Luke said this earlier, we set our minds on things above. We set our thoughts on the person and work of Jesus Christ. This gives us fuel to run. We think about his work on the cross for us. He endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy set before him, of course, because we are in Christ is our joy as well. This, this is focusing forward on what Titus 2 calls the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verses 4 through 11 tells us that we look also to the Father who strengthens our endurance through loving discipline. He strengthens our resolve, our ability to keep going, to persevere through his gracious and loving and kind discipline. So we look back at the great cloud of witnesses, we look up to Christ, we look forward to joy, and we look to our Father who disciplines us for our good. That's the foundation. That's, that's, where, we look, that's where we look back and see, and now as we come to the therefore, what comes after therefore in verse 12 is built on that foundation. We cannot obey the commands of God without the resources that he gives us to obey them. So, what comes after therefore is how we finish the race well. 
There's two parts. One, we want to run in a certain way. That's verses 12, 13, and 14. And two, we want to be on guard against certain things. So we want to run in a certain way. We want to run in a certain kind of way. And there's three things I want to point out in verses 12 to 14 that show us how we are to run. First, we are to run with renewed strength. Renewed strength. Verse 12, Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Now, if somebody is weak-kneed, usually it means they're kind of a wimp, right? They're kind of, you know, they, they need to grow a spine or something, you know, or they're, or they're just fearful, given to fear if somebody's weak-kneed. I, I think, well, that, that's one way to describe weak knees. Another is when somebody's exhausted. They've been running for a while and they're exhausted. I, I read, I, I was watching, uh, I've watched parts of, Actually, I think maybe I've watched all of it. This documentary on the Chicago Bulls on ESPN. Anyone else watched that over the last month or so? Um, and there's this one part, this, the coach Phil Jackson said, I, I needed to take Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan uh, out because I could tell that he was exhausted because his knees were wobbly. And I think that's what the author has in mind here. Strengthen your weak knees. Lift up your drooping hands. When you're running and getting tired, the first evidence that's seen, one of the first evidences perhaps, is drooping arms and hands and weak knees. And so the author is like a coach urging a runner to keep going. Stop slouching. I can hear my basketball coach, Rod Clarkson, playing defense. Get down. Get in position. It's like I'm exhausted. I know, but you've got to have good form. Stop slouching. Get your knees higher. I've heard in a marathon, I've never run, in a mar no, never run a marathon, I have no intention of doing that, but I've heard that there's a point where the energy of a runner is completely zapped. The marathon runner calls it hitting the wall. Right? The legs don't work. There's no strength in the arms. Obviously, the breathing is incredibly labored. In an actual marathon, the runner desperately needs calories as well as perhaps a slow pace and so forth in order to replenish energy. Of course, the author of the book of Hebrews, both the human author and the divine author, the Holy Spirit, is concerned about our spiritual stamina, our spiritual strength, to have our strength replenished spiritually because the race we are in is a race of faith. And you and I desperately need endurance. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 10, I think it's verse 36, where the author says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We need nourishment to replenish our zapped strength for persevering to the end. I think of the verse in Isaiah chapter 40. It's the last verse, or the, the last two verses, talking about waiting on the Lord that we may renew strength, or that our strength may be renewed, that we might 
run and not grow weary, that we might walk and not faint. We need this kind of nourishment, this kind of renewed strength so that we might finish strong. And the author here in verse 12 is quoting from Isaiah 35. He's quoting from Isaiah 35. If you are spiritually exhausted, it may be of little help to actually raise your hands up or actually strengthen your knees. But he's using this metaphor for us, and it's from Isaiah 35. And what I want to do is read a little broader context so that you see the nourishment that we need. Here's Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4. It says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Your God will come. Your God will come with recompense. He will come and save you. When you're exhausted spiritually, when you are just weary and ready to give up, what do you need for your stamina to be refueled? What do you need for your spiritual battery to be recharged? You and I need to look up and behold our God. That's what we need. Desperately, that's what we need. We need to have eyes of faith refocused on our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ and his salvation. When you and I are exhausted and weary and fading, we look to Christ for nourishment. We lift our eyes to him. In just the last week, I was listening to a podcast and one of the speakers on the podcast, you ever listen to something, and often this particular podcast, there's really good stuff on it, but you ever listen to something and you're supposed to be spiritually encouraged by it and by the end of it, you want to pull your hair out? Has that ever happened to you before? Okay, well, that happened this time when I was listening to this this podcast, at least part of it. um, One of the speakers was, he was, it's a Christian podcast, And he was talking about how when people are discouraged, they're going through something really hard, it's not helpful as a Christian talking to another Christian just to tell them to look to Christ. I remember thinking to myself, he went on and kind of talked somewhat pop psychology sort of things. And and I'm not saying that there's not other things that can be somewhat helpful. But I'm thinking to myself, what else do we have to give people but Christ? Maybe it's because we have, a, this speaker anyways, has a diminished view of Christ. I read my Bible and Paul says things like, when Christ, who is our life, appears. For Paul, Christ was life. Christ was nourishment. Christ was Everything. And I'm not saying that all we do is say, look to Christ, look to Christ, look to Christ. We help lead people to Christ. We hug people. We weep with people. But we want to lead them to Christ. We want to lead them to Jesus. And my guess is that this particular person himself found that unhelpful. Isaiah says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold your God. We look to Christ. 
for spiritual strength and encouragement. But we can't do this alone, and this leads to the, the next thing we need to do in order to finish strong this race. The second thing is that we run together. We run with renewed strength, and we run together. Verse 13, And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This first phrase might be a reference to Proverbs 4, verses 25 to 27, which says, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder your path, the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So stay on the right path, right? Stay on the path. Don't stray. But how do we do this? Remember, this book, just like most of the New Testament letters, This book was not written to an individual person, but to a church, to a group of people, to a a body, if you will, to a church. The way that we run and finish well is by running together. As you and I run with renewed strength, we help one another. We help the weak person, the lame person, if you will, so that he doesn't fall behind. Finishing strong with perseverance in the marathon of faith is a community project. Think of it this way. Perseverance is a community venture, something we do together. If you want to endure to the end, you will need faithful brothers and sisters to do it with you. You and I won't make it on our own. And I would add this, we are fools to think if we can, that we can. The New Testament knows nothing and speaks nothing of the lone ranger Christian, the guy who is out on his own, making it on his own. Like me and Jesus, we got this. We got this. The New Testament that person doesn't exist in the New Testament. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Christian life is heroic. I mean, it's epic. It is glorious. But not like Rambo, right? The one-man wrecking crew. He's got his guns. He's got his biceps. He'll take down opposing armies by himself. And it's not like Wonder Woman, the one-woman heroine saving the world. It's more like a band of brothers, a band of believers in battle. There's a war movie that I would not commend to you. I'm not going to tell you the name of it. Some of you might guess it when I I start describing it. But I wouldn't commend the movie to you. I saw it some time back. But there's this incredibly moving scene at the end. These army rangers are dropped into a foreign city on a mission. They're battling. They do battle for a day and a half, I believe. It's much harder than they thought. They thought they'd be in and out. It turned into a disaster. They're dying. They're, they're in battle. They're, they're beleaguered. And finally, the, the commanding officer said, call it off. Get them out of there. 
So these army rangers, they start loading up in rescue vehicles, but there's not enough room because of the wounded and dead that had to be laid in these vehicles as well. So there's about seven or eight or ten, eight to ten of these men who have to run out of the city with hostile fire coming from buildings and run out of the city and another couple miles to the base where they'd be safe. And as they're running, it's not like the stud sprints ahead. They're all studs, but it's not like one of them sprints ahead. They're staying together. There's one scene where a guy's helping his comrade. There's another scene where a guy's heaving, like throwing up because exhaustion. And yet the others are there with them. And that's at least kind of what the Christian life is meant to be like. We run together. We stay together. We, and not, not because, because others need me. I mean, that's true. But because I need you. There is a, well, I won't go down that road. We run together. We endure together. And of course, this, this message is pervasive in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We don't want to do that. But exhort one another daily, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why do we exhort one another? Why do we come alongside one another, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, and receiving it? So that our hearts aren't hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need each other to endure. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we run with renewed strength and we run together. Finally, we run after peace and holiness. We run after, we chase after peace and holiness. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're to strive for peace with everyone and holiness. The word strive means a violent pursuit. It's almost always in the New Testament used in a negative way to persecute someone or to pursue someone with violent, hostile intent. And we are to strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. We're to strive after peace. I don't think this is talking about peace with God. Peace with God is a free gift that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ alone, Romans 5.1. This is talking about peace with everyone Every, uh, every human being, and I think in particular every Christian brother and sister. It's peace with others. The reason why is, I think, obvious. Conflict among Christians is so disruptive. So disruptive in a body of believers when there's a lack of peace, when there's disruption, or excuse me, when there's conflict. What if you and I took this verse very seriously and never allowed real conflict or imagined conflict 
Like sometimes it's just, it starts here and whether it's real or not, we, it just stays here. We never allowed it to fester. We never allowed it to reside in our hearts. Do you think we'd be a stronger church? Absolutely. Do you think you'd be a stronger Christian? Do you think your family would be stronger? Yeah, absolutely. And so we strive, we run after, we chase down peace with everyone. And we strive for holiness. We pursue it with a passion. What is holiness? Don't think boring and harsh. Holiness, you know, those holy people, they're just always worried somebody's having fun somewhere. That's not the biblical idea of holiness. If I could, maybe another word to use for holiness is to pursue holiness is to pursue spiritual beauty. It is to be beautified from the inside out. It is to become more and more like Christ who was the most wonderful, gracious, loving person who's ever lived. It's to be beautified from the inside out. That's what it means to be holy. Inside out beauty. It starts in our hearts, of course, but it, but it does work its way out to our actions and our words. And we're to pursue this. In other words, holiness or Christ-likeness doesn't just happen. It requires effort certainly grace-based effort no doubt grace-based effort but still effort so we are to strive for holiness for christ-likeness to be to be beautiful spiritually on the inside like jesus is one way to strive for holiness is to stop settling for low expectations regarding your own transformation. I'm just kind of a negative person. Ever heard that before? Maybe you've said it before. (laughs) Um, To stop settling for low expectations. Stop thinking or saying, hey, nobody's perfect. That's true, no, except Christ. No one is perfect, but you know what? If you are in Christ, you are headed toward perfection. That's where you're going. Stop making peace with hidden sins or acceptable sins. Acceptable sins. That's, I'm stealing the title of a book. Sins like worry, anxiety, Those are sins. It's clearly not trusting God. Sins like gossip and slander. Sins like judgmentalism and self-righteousness. Sins like discontentment and self, excuse me, a lack of self-control. Sins like pride, anger, envy, and worldliness. And why is our personal holiness so vital what the author tells us we need to hear this without holiness 
no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, without the evidence that your faith is a living faith by a changed life, you will not see the Lord. You won't see him. Jesus puts these two ideas of peace and purity together in the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 5, 8, and 9, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They'll see him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So how do we run? We run with renewed strength. We run together, and we run after peace and holiness. What are we on guard against? I want to get through these relatively quickly. What are we on guard against as we're running? Three things. We are on guard against, verse 15, the first part of verse 15 says, we guard against falling short of the grace of God. First part of 15 says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now God's grace is his undeserved kindness for his children, no doubt, right? Kent Hughes He's dead now, but pastor, commentator, says that there's this picture that helps him think of God's grace toward his children that is inexhaustible. He sees it as this pitcher in God's hand and is tilted, brimming with water, tilted to pour out on his children. It's just, that's who God is. He gives. As a father, he is generous to give to his children. So this phrase, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, means not keeping pace with God's grace that he provides to us and to spur us on in the progress of our lives. The New American Standard puts it this way, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. So don't think of earning God's grace. You can't earn it. Think rather of remaining in the the way of his grace or remaining under the waterfall of his grace. Don't get out of the way of his grace. Don't fail or come short of his grace. How does that happen? How do we... How do we come short of God's grace? Well, I want to consider just really quickly two things. First, we come short or miss the grace of God through self-starvation of God's word. God's word is grace to us. You guys know how Paul begins many of his letters? Grace to you. Why? Because that's what God's words are to us. And so if we starve ourselves of this wonderful, glorious means of grace, then we come short of the grace of God. Same page summer. Jump in seriously and feast. God's word is empowering, enabling, and it is his loving grace that comes to us. This another way, and I'm just, I'm just covering two. There's many others, I'm sure. But another way that we can come short of the grace of God is through a lack of self-conscious, robust fellowship in the body of Christ. 
there is a kind of rugged individualism built in the, into the fabric of America, right? I mean, no doubt. I mean, I think of those settlers that went west to tame new land, right? The, the 49ers that went out to mine gold. I mean, there's this kind of rugged individualism that is built into the American spirit. But we shouldn't assume that that is necessarily a Christian virtue alone. Don't get me wrong. I mean, certainly personal responsibility, not being a complainer or a powder, but just getting up and doing the hard work to get stuff done, that is, that's a good thing. If one thinks that we are called to a personal relationship with God and the church is optional or marginal, maybe that's a better way, that's marginal. Let me hold up a danger sign. That is a very dangerous way to think about the bride of Christ, about the household of God that you belong to, that we belong to. It's a sure sign of trouble. And I, I fear that many come short of this glorious, life-giving means of grace, the grace of God, because the church and their integral participation in it is marginal. The command to see to it that we see at the beginning of verse 15 is a plural command, meaning there's a communal responsibility to make sure no one misses the grace of God. This does not mean that we meddle in each other's lives like the watchdog, (laughs) making sure everyone's staying in line. Um, But it does certainly mean that there is a there is an investment in each other's lives. Hey, let's not fall short of what God has for you. Let's not fall short of the grace of God. Hey, you, are you in God's word? Are you being nourished by God's word? This admonition, this loving encouragement and admonition to one another and from one another. Second thing we need to guard against is a root of bitterness. Verse 15, second part says, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Now often we use the word bitterness to speak of someone being angry, holding a grudge, unforgiving and so forth. And of, and of course that's a proper way to use the word. If someone is bitter, they, they won't forgive, they hold a grudge. I don't think that's what the author has in mind here. If something is bitter, if, if a piece of food is bitter, it can also be foul or poisonous. I think that a root of bitterness probably refers to a bitter root in someone's life that produces poisonous and bitter fruit. Deuteronomy 29, 18 and 19 may be what the author had in mind when he wrote this. Listen to what it says. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. 
One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, listen to this, blesses himself and says, I shall be safe. Though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, everything is fine. What is the root that produces bitter fruit? I think, and I think this is one of the things that the author of Hebrews has in mind throughout the whole book. It's a brazen attitude about grace. It's an attitude of someone who has a stubborn heart and yet assures himself, all is well. I shall be safe. I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. My parents are Christians. You could go through the list, right? I shall be safe. This is a poisonous attitude. The message of come as you are and stay as you are, you are safe, you don't need to submit, you don't need to change, you don't need to bow to Jesus as Lord, don't worry about that, it is a lie and it defiles many. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Here's what Bonhoeffer said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. We want to guard against that bitter root and bitter fruit. Commenting on this verse, John Piper had this to say, a root of bitterness is a person or a doctrine in the church that encourages people to act presumptuously and treats salvation as an automatic thing that does not require a life of vigilance in the fight of faith and the pursuit of holiness. Such a person or doctrine defiles many and can lead to the experience of Esau who played fast and loose with his inheritance and could not repent in the end and find life. We want to guard against that. We need help from each other. We need to help each other guard against that. Finally, we guard against sensual, sinful appetites, sensual appetites. See to it that there is no, 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 excuse me, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Sensual appetites, appetites that please our senses. Touch, taste, sight, and so forth. I think we might be surprised at how many people's spiritual lives have been derailed because of a love of pleasure, just generally a love of pleasure. Second Timothy 3, 4, verse four, Paul describes some as lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's not, I mean, we all enjoy pleasing things, but it's lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In our text, I think the author specifically draws our attention to sexual pleasure and physical appetite. Sex and sexual relations, of course, it's a good gift from God in the context of marriage. What is in view here is a deviant form of sexual expression. The the Greek word translated 
Immorality is the word pornos, from which we get the word pornography or porn. It's a general word to describe sexual sin in, all, in many forms, but I think the author probably has in mind specifically fornication here. But he also draws our attention to Esau's, he was willing to give up his birthright for a meal, for food. Food is a good gift from God, meant to be enjoyed, meant to serve our nourishment and joy, but food is a terrible master. It's a wonderful servant. It's a terrible master. Robert Murray McShane, I remember reading this maybe a year ago, so and I was really challenged, convicted by this. Robert Murray McShane makes the following statement regarding a minister, but I think there's application universally. He says this, if Satan can only make you a lover of praise, of pleasure, of good eating, he has ruined your ministry. We need to be on guard against this. We, are, we want to be lovers of God, not lovers of pleasure. And I like good food as much as anyone else. So, what do we guard against in this run? We guard against coming short of God's grace, a root of bitterness, and being derailed by sensual appetites. And we do all of these things. Remember, we fix our eyes on Christ in this race or in this run of faith. In this marathon of faith, we fix our eyes on Christ. And when we're weary, we fix our eyes on him and get renewed strength. And when we've fallen short and when we've stumbled and when we've fallen into sin, even grievous sin, we fix our eyes on Him. We run to Him so that we can be forgiven and washed and get up and run. We fix our eyes on Christ. Let's pray.